Hello there, I'm Paul Church. I'm the director of the Anemo Group. We're a tech, data and digital talent solution. This is our podcast, Talent and Growth, where we discuss all things attraction and retention related. And today, I'm very happy to be joined by Hung Lee, uh, the uh, curator of Recruiting Brain Food, which is a very, very popular newsletter. Uh, If you're not subscribed, if you work in recruitment or talent acquisition i absolutely implore you to to get signed up to it it's just a wealth of information every sunday morning um and he's just really really insightful around what's going on in the world in the market um we talked about the future of work we talked around what ta teams should be doing now what innovations are exciting him um, i think this one is called really um how to understand the market in 2022 um, because he certainly does um, so i hope you enjoy this episode here he is And today I'm joined by the great Hung Lee. How are you doing, Hung? Um, very well, Paul. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Amazing. Well, look, I'm a big fan, uh, particularly of the, the Recruiting Brain Food newsletter. Anyone who's listening right now who doesn't subscribe, certainly please do subscribe straight away. Um, but apart from that, for, those, for maybe one or two people who don't know exactly who you are or what your journey's been. So if you could just give us some insight into your career and how you've got to where you are now, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I'm a recruiter. I still think of myself that way, even though it's been like a decade since I last, you know, I slung a CV in anger, so to speak. Um, but, um, but yeah, basically started off as a recruitment agent, um, you know, worked in the technology space as a recruiter for maybe 10 years or so, a couple of uh, recruitment agencies, um, uh, ended up trying to kind of do a recruiting training type of business, um, dropped back into recruiting, but this time is in-house, mainly recruiting for startups and, you know, software engineers and what have you. Um, launched my own tech platform to try and solve that problem in a more um, algorithmic way, if you if you like. Um, and on the back of that software platform, I, I started writing a newsletter, started doing more content. And, you know, over time, that became a bigger a bigger part of what I was doing and, and uh, a bigger thing that the community wanted me to do. So recruiting brain food really emerged from me, uh, uh, you know, doing that type of stuff. So these days I write a newsletter, I do a podcast, uh, I kind of curate community spaces, I guess, for the uh, recruiting industry. What kind of reach has the recruiting brain food newsletter got now? Uh, I think it's about 25,000 or so. Um, so it's not like mega massive, um, uh, but it's a reasonable size for like an indie type of publication, I think. Fantastic. Did you have, was that the vision when you first started it? Was it, do you expect it to get to this magnitude? No, I mean, it was never a numbers objective to it. Um, I think, you know, if you, it, it, these are difficult things to do if you did have a number a, a sort of target, I think. Um, it, it's, a, it's a labor of love at the end of the day, Paul. Um, I think you'd appreciate it as a podcaster. Uh, you know, you would understand that you, know, you do this because um, uh, you enjoy doing it, not so much because you get an extra two listeners every week or whatever. It's like you're going to keep on cracking through. And if people enjoy it and they end up subscribing, that's a bonus. Um, and I've got very much the same attitude on the newsletter. You know, it's like I'm going to do this regardless. I was doing it regardless without paying attention to the, the size of it for at least six months. And then I noticed people started talking about it and that's when i realized oh hang on maybe this is actually interesting for the people um and it was only like six months after that uh, that i realized hey maybe maybe this could in fact be a business yeah 100 percent. i mean all, all these all the great things come from authenticity and a, a, a project of passion don't they and then you know if they turn into something great then, then fantastic worth it worst thing that's going to happen is you're spending time doing something you really really enjoy isn't it 
that's it. And it gives you resiliency as well. Like a few friends of mine having seen how brain food have, has moved on and, you know, it's given me a different lifestyle, definitely, which, which I, I greatly appreciate, uh, you know, the idea that I can basically run a, a reasonable business without, you know, you know, without reporting to a boss, without having different obligations, without having to do stuff I don't want to do. I feel like super blessed by a bad circumstance. Um, but there are friends of mine that say, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do this. And I think, look, go ahead and do it 100%. I endorse it. I can't tell you not because I've gone and done it. Uh, but at the same time, do make sure that whatever it is you're doing, you're like genuinely passionate about. Um, because there's going to be like a long period of time when nothing's happening. <laughs> Um, and if you're like thinking it's going to switch on after 10 weeks or whatever, and think that's where the money starts rolling in or whatnot, I've got another thing to tell you, you know, that's, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I feel that. Um, so what, what does the world of talent acquisition look like to you in 2022? And what, what have you seen in terms of evolution in the last few years? Yeah, it's exciting space, Paul. I, I, I think all of us are very conscious of the fact that it's just such a, a fluid sort of moment for, for the industry. I don't think, I can't remember a time where it's been more exciting because you don't know which direction it's going to go. The only thing that we're confident on is it will not look anything like it was five years ago. Um, that includes the, the jobs we're doing, the contract types we'll be doing those jobs through, um, the types of the types of so social organization, maybe we don't even call them companies anymore, the kind of social organization that will uh, get together in order to organize that labor force. All of those things are changing. All of that then has a cascade effect on the type of work that recruiters will do. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think you can not be interested in, in, in thinking about it. I think we're all, we've all turned into like quasi futurists uh, as a result of you know uh, this moment that we're all in and what do you your point around kind of how contracts and services are laid out what, what do you think around that because of course I've, I've run a business now it's an embedded talent model i'm not you know i certainly didn't invent that there's a lot of companies going that way and of course we've still got the the old-fashioned recruitment agency model which makes money you know it makes a lot of money where, where do you think we're going long term with it I think I think those two things will merge. I mean, uh, previously there was like this um, very much the embedded recruiter uh, was um, essentially a way for uh, suppliers to really establish trust with with um, buying customers. Because um, customers, um, when you were like literally just sending uh, or faxing CVs or whatever it was, it was very distant. Um, you weren't sure how much work uh, this agency was doing for you. You weren't sure whether this agency was actually representing other companies, competitors. Uh, of course, they were. Um, so suddenly, you're feeling, hang on, you know, am I getting what I want from this uh, from this uh, relationship? The embedded model was basically there to establish trust. You get the recruiter on site um, back in the old days, and you can just see that they're working for you and not working for anybody else. Now, I think that basically COVID accelerates that situation, but it also changes the difference between an agency supplier and an embedded recruiter. Because what is the difference these days if all of us are distributed in any case? Um, an embedded recruiter is very much a metaphorical term these days um, because you're not actually on site with the customer. You wouldn't do that in the COVID era, but you are working probably with a customer email domain. You're representing the customer as is 
all of that's all well and good. Um, and I think what will happen is a lot more agencies will move into the space. I'd be very surprised if agencies don't offer it as a default service uh, to customers to say, hey, listen, do you prefer traditional agency supply? Do you want us to work uh, as a, an embedded recruiter? Uh, different pricing models for either of those. Um, and the customer will say, yeah, one or the other. So yeah, I think it's an exciting space. Uh, bottom line is customers will end up getting much greater variety, um, much more choice. And hopefully, you know, that competition will improve the, uh, the service level that they get. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think it, it, it um, enhances the level of service an agency or a supplier needs to give because, of course, it's not just about here's a CV, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client. It is, you know, let's help you with your processes. Let's, you know, should we get involved with your onboarding? So it makes it a much more, much more um, mature, doesn't it? It does. I mean, again, it's, it's some customers do do just want a CV service. Let's not forget that, um, you know, there's, there's businesses out there that don't want that level of concierge. Um, and it's all dependent on, you know, oftentimes the attitude of that of the individual hiring manager or, or whatnot, what their expectations are. Um, but the the ability of companies to provide like what was previously an expensive way to deliver a service, an RPO model was an expensive thing to do back in the day because you know you're, you'd be deploying an on, on a, a salaried employee permanently or at least you know full time uh, for a fixed period of time with the customer. That person wouldn't be able to earn any money for you from other sources. That was an expensive risk to take. But I think these days that that risk is is receding. Um, and uh, you're going to find uh, it a, a profitable space for recruiters to operate in, and I think a, uh, a, a one with more choice for for those for those uh, customers. Yeah, hundred percent agree. If we look at, um, I suppose it could work both ways, but for more in-house talent acquisition teams uh, and talent acquisition as a whole, what are the significant trends of 2022 that you're seeing? Talent acquisition as a whole, I think. One of the big sort of critical issues is uh, basically the lack of recruiters. Um, you know, uh, the inability to recruit recruiters is actually changing how recruiting is done. Um, uh, so in other words, uh, companies are confronting the reality that they're simply not going to, they're going to be understaffed in their TA team, um, which means that they have to automate more. It means that they have to really re-examine the way in which they're processing candidates. Uh, they need to kind of double down on process efficiency um, because you've got less hands on deck doing more work. Um, and I think that's very acute, very clear. Um, I, I think maybe in a six-month period, there was some effort to try and recruit more recruiters. I wouldn't say we've given up on doing that, but it's still very clear to companies that, that they're approaching it thing with a view. We may actually not be able to increase, increase our capacity in our existing uh, recruiting team. Therefore, we need to increase our uh, efficiency. So lots of interesting things are happening in terms of process and in terms of automation in the, uh, in the internal recruiter space for sure. Yeah, I was, it's interesting. I was actually speaking to name drop in recruitment. I was speaking to Greg Savage earlier today, and he was mm. talking about how in 2020, when everyone got, lots of people got let go, the most people who got let go, of course, those people who had under one year's experience, and they've never returned to recruitment. So, of course, we've lost that, you know, those two, three year, year, year people who we think who right now will be coming, you know, getting good. Yeah, it's a very good, uh, very good insight. Greg's great at kind of having a, uh, those times of, you know, deeper thoughts about it. I think it's absolutely right. We, we lost a lot of talent that may uh, prematurely, you know, unfortunately, they, they, they left and, and may have gone and done other things. And there's a huge gap. Um, we are seeing more recruiters be made, you know, so we're seeing lots of companies thinking about investing in training. We've seen the rise of, 
you know, almost like, uh, you know, recruit to train type of uh, uh, services where we're saying, hey, um, we're going to train this raw recruit um, into a recruiter. We're going to train them 12, 12 weeks and then we're going to put them on site uh, in your business. Uh, and that type of model is starting to evolve. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, I think the recruiter shortage um, probably won't be like as acute uh, as as it has been. I think we're at probably at peak um, uh, towards the end of this year. We'll have a much better picture where we're at, but we should get like loads more recruiters into the industry uh, by the turn of the year. I, I would imagine. Yeah, hopefully so. And I think um, it, talent as a whole, um, when we're talking about going out on the hunt for the right candidates, it seems the motivations of the people we're reaching out to have changed a lot over the last few years. What what, what advice would you give to businesses who who are looking to tap into what people really want when they're trying to attract new people into their company? It's so tough, uh, uh, Paul. It really is. Um, I, I think there's lots of ways you can lead with it. Um, the bottom line is the, the, the candidates, especially the highly skilled in demand candidates, um, uh, really do have a, an abundance mindset right now, um, which essentially means that they um, know um, that they can uh, generate opportunities simply uh, and whenever they, they want uh, with, with low effort. Um, and it's very difficult to convert anybody with that mindset because of their, you know, they're probably already in work. If they're not in work, they know they can be in work whenever they want. Um, you know, you really need to have something super compelling. Um, so you, your choices are, look, do you just amp up the compensation to ridiculous levels, uh, which some companies definitely are doing for certain roles, um, including recruiting, by the way. Um, uh, you know, I don't know whether you saw... Um, a post by uh, Josh Liu, who did the, the basic research on stuff that was happening in uh, San Francisco, California, in terms of recruiter salary and compensation, quarter of a million, you know, 300 grand type base salaries and stuff like this, like ridiculous numbers, right? Uh, for individual contributors, by the way. Um, so uh, certain companies are uh, maxing out the comp. Uh, but obviously, there's only a, certain, a small percentage of businesses that can afford to do that. Um, other ways to do it really is to, I would say, hey, provide you know remote working and flexible working and stuff. But that's becoming almost like a hygiene factor now. Um, it's not going to be a differentiator to, 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 and I'm using recruiting as an example, but it would apply to a software engineer or anybody who's a knowledge worker. It's no longer a thing to say, hey, we'll allow you to work from anywhere. Uh, isn't that good, sir? Uh, they will expect that already as a hygiene factor built in. So it's not a differentiator. Um, the only thing I can think of is ultimately uh, lean into what you are as a business. You know, I mean, there's going to be certain companies that do a certain thing um, that is particularly interesting for a particular milieu of person, uh, a, a particular demographic, should I say. Um, so if you're, you know, working in green tech or something, um, yeah, lean on that. You know, that's something people might be interested, very motivated to get involved in. It's a high good type of uh, type of uh, 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 type of purpose. Um, and, and that would give you a competitive advantage. Uh, have a think about those types of things you can lean into. Lots of businesses may not fit that way. Uh, or, or shall we say, may not like obviously slide into those types of, you know, social good type of uh, uh, type of categories. But there may be a way in which you could think about the overall purpose of your business and try and tap into people that are into it uh, in, in whatever way. Yeah, that's good advice. And I think um, it's interesting what you say around the remote working. So typically when I've worked with clients who are looking for 
tech people like software engineers javascript engineers whatnot um you know they've some companies we work with have or i've worked with before want people in two days a week on site that's not an unreasonable request given where we were two years ago but actually they're not interested and the world has moved so quickly from you know two years ago we're on site then we're flexible then we're hybrid now we're remote first and it's just gone zero to 100 in such a short space of time it's tough for companies to keep up isn't it it is, but we have to re- the companies just have to be smart. I mean, if the job can be remotable, you should absolutely aggressively do that. Um, there's a lot of internal resistance as to why that is, is, isn't happening. And, and to a large degree, it's because of, uh, in my opinion, uh, kind of managerial lack of confidence um, or as to their ability to manage a remote team. Uh, and also about, you know, uh, uh, feasibility. I mean, uh, oftentimes a person that is most effective as a remote worker is typically a self-managed person. Um, and therefore, it kind of begs the question, do you even need management? Um, so there's an existential crisis amongst the line managers um, who might be looking at remote working as maybe, you know, challenging their even their, their entire existence, if you will. Um, and they, of course, have a lot of uh, power internally within the company to start saying, you know what, well, I'd rather manage my team in-house. There's actually a really interesting post again uh, earlier this week. I, I saw it from a friend of mine in Portugal, and he's a product manager, but he was tracking um, uh, product manager vacancies. um, And product manager vacancies are one of the uh, uh, vacancies that have shown the biggest decrease in remote vacancies advertised. Um, Now, that that was a very interesting finding because it tells me that, hey, is it because product managers are suddenly deciding, you know what, we can't do our jobs like remotely. Um, We need to get these engineers in, <laughs> you know, I can't do my PMing um, from Slack or Zoom or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, maybe that there's a managerial tier that basically is, is, is wanting the individual contributors in. Individual contributors, very clear. I don't need to be there. By the way, I think this applies in recruiting as well. Um, if you're looking classic recruitment agency, I assure you recruitment sales managers are thinking, I, you know, I do my job when the team's around. Um, uh, you know, I do, I, I'm able to train younger people. I'm able to pick up on calls that aren't working. I'm able to, you know, understand and, and moderate all this. I, it's hard to do when it's all remote. All those individual recruiters are thinking, yeah, no chance, boss, am I coming back in voluntarily? So uh, we're up for, there's going to be a very interesting, almost industrial conflict going to happen in, in this space between managers and workers. Yeah, and I think from the agency side, I mean, certainly when I was running a running a team in a business, uh, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't. I was an advocate of flexible working, but I could not imagine the world we we're in now a few years ago. I just didn't see how it'd be possible. And even now, I think the biggest challenge is, is how you're training those uh, those you know first jobbers in recruitment. It's really tough, but I think it's just the reality. And I think the question needs to stop. You know, it, the comments need to stop being it's not possible. So how on earth are we going to make this work? How are we going to make this happen? You know what? I would say that the managers have a point. Um, I mean, it's one of those where I, I, I think what we don't want to do is get to, to a moral, and I, I might have been guilty of it myself by kind of inferring some sort of moral uh, judgment on you know people's attitude to remote work or not. Um, you know, remote work good, on-premise bad kind of thing. Um, I don't think that's necessarily as clean cut. Uh, because it is true to say that for the first job that's coming in, raw graduate, a remote-only situation is actually a, the worst possible scenario. Um, they're going to want to learn in office, 
uh, osmotically, you know, sitting next to a senior, listening in, all of that, like informal learning the beginnings by being present. If you recall back to your, the first job you ever had, um, Paul, I remember the first job I had in recruiting, I knew absolutely nothing. And without me sitting at desk and just listening in to people, I would not be doing any progress, right? Literally zero forward movement. So I think the managers do have a have a point. I, I mean, I honestly think the the um, uh, the pattern of play is pretty clear. Um, on premise is going to be a young person's game. Um, it will be almost like an extension of a graduate campus, um, and the managers will effectively turn into trainers of young people. Um, but as those people get more experience, they'll end up going remote out. Um, so I think this, we're going to have like an age sort of thing when it comes to companies and how they're divided. Um, it's going to be a, a really kind of interesting mix of how it's going to work. But for me, that's a clear direction, you know. That's a really, really interesting and makes sense. Uh, really interesting way to put it. And it really makes sense. Um, also quite terrifying. I thought of a recruitment campus as well, isn't it? <laughs> I think it will work for the, for the younger folks. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was in... Um, like part of the reason why I was excited to go into the office because you, you had this collegiate experience with fellow joiners and stuff, right? Um, I still remember the people I, I joined with, even though they've left recruitment and done different things. I can name them right now who they are because uh, it was a real kind of uh, a, a real sense of security to be in with a group of people learning together. Um, and, and I think we'll replicate that. That will come back. Um, and that will mean an office experience. I don't think you can do this effectively in remote only, but I think there'll be such resistance from the individual contributors of, with experience that we're going to have to let them go remote. Um, and there'll be this, there'll be basically in the office, you're going to see some managers and some graduates, basically, and all of the five, six years experience individual contributor types that aren't managers will be working offsite. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And how do you find, think um, uh, a more remote workforce? And obviously, that is where we're heading. Um, certainly, if we're looking at tech, tech hires and things like that. How do you think that will affect compensation? Because of course, there's this conversation right now as to whether if you're not going to the office, should location come into play in terms of how much you're paid and remunerated, that kind of thing? Where, where, where do you stand on that? It will go up and then it will go down uh, in a very, very sharp sort of uh, way. Um, so in other words, um, we're still like throwing huge money at people um, that can demand like high salaries and stuff like this. Um, I think this makes sense right now for a candidate. You should absolutely uh, maximize your earning potential as you uh, at this moment. Um, but it's also clear that as we get more used to working remotely, um, and we're going to start offshoring these jobs. Um, if I'm paying 300 grand for a recruiter that's working remote, um, I, at some point, my CFO is going to say, you know what, why don't you put this job here? I can pay 70 grand for this. And is this person 300 grand? Is he worth four times uh, the value of, of hiring a 70 grand person? Why don't you just hire four of these 70 grand people? Um, and eventually there'll be a big crash of these remote only jobs because they'll be offshore. Um, so I think that the evangelists for remote probably are very, very bullish right now, understandably, because they've got huge demand, again, abundance mindset, et cetera. We've got about a year and a half, two years of this. Uh, so make your money now, definitely max it out, but expect that job to be, to be outsourced. Um, if you're running a business, it does not make sense for you to hire a remote team right now in the UK. Um, it makes you a sense for you to hire a bunch of sources in South Africa, for instance. 
same time zone, same language, third of the cost. Why not? It makes absolute sense for you to do that. Uh, why don't you put a, a recruiting team in Manila? Good English, um, maybe a fifth of the cost. Um, all of these things will start happening. We're starting to see technology services sort the payroll out. You know, you look at Oyster, HR, Deal, Remote. Those are billion-dollar valuation businesses. Why? Because the direction of travel is obvious. Um, these companies are going to basically enable employers to hire anybody anywhere and take care of all of the tax, payroll, etc. And all of these knowledge jobs, including developer jobs, by the way, or anything that requires the, no physical presence, will eventually shift to places where it's cheaper to do. So uh, salary is high in it right now. Then we're going to crash hard. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Really, really good insights there. Okay. Um, let's move, move on to um, your advice around. So talent acquisition teams, um, I think, really have been elevated over the last few years. But I think there's still some businesses who may look at a TA team as being a business support function. Um, how, do, how do TA teams move from that into being seen as a credible strategic business partner? Um, they've got to want to do it, firstly. Um, you know, oftentimes TA has this customer service mentality. A, lo a lot of it, I think, comes from the, the historical root of a lot of TA folks being ex-agency. So when you're ex-agency, you typically have a customer service mentality. You're going to go in there and you're going to deliver to your, your clients. You can't be saying, no, I'm going to do that or push back in any way because you're fearful of rival coming in uh, sort of an hour later and delivering something. So you, you're typically saying, yes, give it a go and you know, see if you, you, you fail or you don't. Um, uh, most of us have emerged from that background. Um, what we've got to do is learn that once we're in, internally in a business, that our role is not to say yes. Um, our role is to advise these people and, and give them our expertise to, as to how best to get this thing done. Um, and and you'd be surprised actually how much uh, managers are actually looking for us to do this. Um, you're looking for us to take a lead, right? Um, looking for us to set the strategy and tell them what to do. Uh, that takes it off their shoulders because the last thing uh, you know a, a, an operational manager wants to do is to design a recruiting strategy. Um, you know they they want Paul to come in and sort it. Um, and if you're prepared uh, sort of to, um, to give the leadership that way, I think you, it's not even something they're going to contest. So you've got to want to do it and you've got to uh, sort of have the confidence to uh, almost expand your scope. Um, last thing you want to do is just to sit, sit back and you know, say yes to stuff that's coming over the fence at you. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and in, in 2022, as we were just talking about um, on the question before, actually, the talent holds all the cards. So obviously we're seeing high salaries, uh, people getting paid over the odds. And, you, and you're, from your point of view, you think this will kind of change in the next 18 months, 24 months or so. Um, how right now does that affect what employer branding should look like? I suppose right now, because at the moment, I, I feel like in the market, we've got companies thinking, how can we make our people happy uh, and doing anything we can to keep them, attract them? How does that, what, what should companies be doing right now? And how does that fit into what you're saying could happen in the next two years? Yeah, employer branding. I think you know it's 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 not just about attracting people. Uh, it's it's about being it's, it's attracting people that are just fundamentally aligned with what it is that you do. Um, so I think this is where people are talking about authenticity, transparency, stuff like this. I think it's important from a practical point of view. It's not just a moral reason to do this. Um, it's practically effective because it means that you're going to switch off a bunch of people that are not right for you. 
Um, uh, you know, it's much better to show the type of company you are, even you know, especially warts and all, not even warts and all, especially warts and all, um, so that the, um, the job candidates can self-select themselves out if they don't fancy that. Um, I, we spend way too much time in marketing generally, but also in EB, where we've been very keen to just polish the, uh, the bright parts of, uh, of the work. Um, turns out job candidates don't want to see that. They're, they're, they're mature enough to recognize that it's not roses and rings all the time. Um, uh, you know, they want to be able to see where's the hard work, what, what doesn't work here, um, uh, you know, what, what's broken in this business. Um, that is not something that's going to cause people to veto themselves out. They will recognize, wow, this is hard stuff. You know, it's hard to build a business that's successful, hard to build a business in the middle of competition, hard to build a business with, you know, in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so they're all aware that there's lots of things that aren't working optimally. You've got to show all of that. And I think that's going to really help you uh, connect with the people that embrace those challenges um, and, and are not sort of surprised when they, when they turn up. Um, I, I forget this is again data pre-COVID, but I remember maybe it was smart recruiters who do did some research about you know I think they 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 they, they surveyed people ninety days after they accepted their job on a rating like was the job what you expected and like obviously sixty odd percent of them said nah um, which is not necessarily bad you know some of them said it was no in a positive way wasn't what I expected but it was better a lot of people said it wasn't what I expected and it was worse. But the point of the matter is it was still a big gap between their expectation and the reality of it. Um, and what we have to do is just close that gap. I think that's what EB needs to focus on. What is it? What are you as a business? Yes, there's aspirational stuff, but I think you got to let that go. What is it right now? Um, and, and just push that up front and center. Who are the companies who really stand out to you in terms of employer branding? What, who's, who do you think are really kind of nailing it right now? Oh man, it's really hard. For, I mean, for me to pull out sort of examples purely because my memory doesn't work. Um, a lot of concussions when I was a kid. Um, no, uh, it, but it's true. I, I can't really draw them out. I'm attracted to companies that basically um, don't uh, just over-engineer anything. I'll tell you a good example of a, of a company that has tried to do this. Um, and I'm not citing them as an example of uh, sort of uh, doing great EB, but they're on a journey towards it. Um, IBM. Uh, which is one of the biggest brands out there, one of the uh, uh, sort of uh, companies that people have an image and a perspective on, uh, but they've got a wonderful recruitment marketing team and they've got a wonderful attitude in that marketing uh, team, which is, again, pushing the authenticity up front and center and just giving sort of their... Uh, their channels to their employees, um, where the employees are just literally telling their own stories with minimal editing, minimal oversight. So they're letting go, basically. And they're saying, you know what, here's us some IBMers. This is what they're saying. Um, and they're being very free with, you know, what these IBMers are saying. And you'll, you'll see some like really uh, diverse set of uh, videos, um, that aren't overproduced and not produced at all often. Um, and they're just employees telling them about their lives. Some of it doesn't make sense. It's like they're not telling about their jobs, they're telling about their lives. But I thought that was a really powerful uh, way to communicate openness. Um, but it also is a window into the what type of people are actually going to succeed in this company. So I don't think it's really difficult to do. It's, 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 it's a mindset shift. Um, it's, it's, it's basically being honest with who you are. And, and you know, the, the, it's, let's, uh, I'll take it back. It is difficult to do, but it's not a complicated thing to do. It's difficult because it's a, it's a courage thing. And you gotta, we've got to let go of a lot of things that we thought were sacrosanct.
makes sense. What well, what innovations in uh, technology for TA and HR out there that are exciting you right now? Interview analytics. Um, I think that's a, a, a growing category or probably move into uh, even a bigger category, maybe a, a talent analytics thing. But the shift to remote is simultaneously a shift from analog to digital, right? So in other words, pre-COVID, there was a lot of processes we were doing in recruiting that were analog. They weren't recorded. Um, there were meetings in offices. There were interviews face-to-face. You know, who knows what happens in those places? No one knows, right? This is where the hiring manager emerges from a one-to-one meeting with a candidate that you submitted and say, yeah, it wasn't strong enough. And you're saying, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what exactly happened? You don't have no idea what happened in that meeting. Um, so interview, the shift to digital means that we have that information. Um, Zoom calls are recorded. Um, they, we can do analysis on that in terms of speaking time. We can do things like what words are used, what questions, how many questions, who is speaking, who isn't speaking. Is there any variance in terms of who is speaking and, and not based on who, who's in the room or not? All those things start happening. Um, and suddenly, as, a, as a, a manager of a department or even the CEO of a business, you can start looking at how you interview candidates and start thinking, oh, maybe we have a problem with how we interview candidates because it seems that you know, a lot of the times my hiring managers are speaking more than the candidates. Uh, that's bad interview training. They need to be trained. Um, or perhaps you start picking out, oh, that hiring manager says no, no, says no all the time it's pretty clear he's rejecting good candidates. Like, why is that happening? He needs interview training or he needs to be taken out of that loop. Or the other way, this person is literally waving people through with a very cursory 20-minute interview. Um, he's lazy. We need to sort that out. So interview analytics, I think, critical. It will help companies hire better. It will be fairer for candidates as well. Fantastic. Yeah, makes sense. And the final question, I think, um, and I think the answer, this has probably changed since you and I first got into recruitment. Um, what do you think the modern recruiter needs to be, needs to have skill-wise, traits-wise, um, be it in agency or talent acquisition? I think a lot of the things have stayed the same in terms of the traits, um, because one of the traits that recruiters do have is adaptability. Um, I think we're very, very quick to make changes. We're very quick to understand trends and jump on them. Um, I think we're very, we have a very good instincts, I think, to the market. That, I think, is just still required. Um, I think we, the, the good recruiters are consultative. Um, you know, that the, they understand how to advise a customer and a candidate to the best effect. It's very difficult to sell consistently uh, in fact, I don't think it's, it, there isn't even such a thing as pressure, right? I mean, high pressure sales, what is that? The guy can just say no. I mean, I mean high pressure sale, sales, I don't think works in recruitment consistently over everyone because it takes basically too many weak people to say yes. Eventually, there's going to be enough people that are going to say no and you've run out of customers. So I think consultative selling, um, uh, sort of mental agility, business acumen, all those things are there. What we do need to do as recruiters, though, is to get more tech literate. I think we've relied a little bit too much um, on, you know, our ability in person. Um, you know, oftentimes a recruiter will come in and they would know they'll have be able to exert influence in an in-person scenario. Okay, how good are you at doing that uh, on email? Um, because maybe that's the main way in which we're going to start uh, communicating with candidates and, and, and clients right now. Different skill set. So more tech literacy, better writing over speaking. Um, uh, those are the main skills. Uh, the other core uh, sort of uh, traits that I think all good recruiters have, I think have remained the same throughout, throughout, throughout the dawn of this industry. Fantastic. Final, final question. If you do want to become more tech literate, where would you go? 
I'll definitely sign up to Brain Food. I mean, basically, uh, I, I don't see my uh, sort of content as being particularly uh, uh, or deliberately focused on tech, but the truth is a lot of innovation is happening in tech. Um, so uh, that would be one resource that's useful. There's loads of um, a, a sort of uh, courses that you can get involved in um, that you can pay for. But even if you don't want to, um, you can even jump onto things like TikTok or YouTube. And that is like an amazing library. Again, these things didn't exist when we first started in the industry. We, we had to go through the hard yards of, you know, reading Computer Weekly and stuff like this to try and figure this out. No, um, these days you have experts just dumping information at you. There's no excuse not to know this. Um, so just spend time. Again, this goes back to our intrinsic values type of uh, concept. Like if you're not like passionately into what, what it is you're doing, um, that's, you're going to struggle. So find a way to get interested in the, the industry that you're recruiting against and, you know, dive deep into it. You've got the resources to do that. And, you know, that's going to be uh, a, a, a competitive advantage against, uh, against other people. Fantastic. And look, finally, just where um, if people do, the one or two people who haven't heard of you before, uh, where do they read your content? Where do they listen to you? Where should they go? Yeah, best place is the uh, website, sign up, to the, sign up to the newsletter, recruitingbrainfood.com. Um, that is basically where you get everything else. So all of the online stuff, all of the, the podcasts and the videos, all of the communication that happens in the communities, uh, that is the route in. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it and hopefully I'll have you back sometime as well. Great to be on the show, Paul. Thank you very much.